Yeah, co-working space might look good from your vantage point, but it's pretty much the worst co-working space that I've ever been in in my life. It's like too cold, there's traffic outside, and you can hear that. Oh, lovely. And the food was awful. The coffee was... I was actually sending messages to Simon being like, is it rude if I just pour my coffee out? Because I can't finish this. It's awful. And I, and I don't want to be like a, I don't want to be like a snob. Like I've drank. I'm okay with yeah. drinking mediocre coffee. It's only when the coffee's like bad that I'm like, oof. Gonna pour that out. Yeah. Especially when you've when you when you've paid a fair bit for it. <laughs> I mean, it's Joburg, so it's cheaper than Cape Town. Certainly cheaper than London. Yeah. Than London. Yeah. Nice. Nice. So is it not is it not a burgeoning um, sort of coffee industry in Joburg? I would it's think it coming was like along quite slowly up, but surely. And I thought it'd be quite hip. Although to be fair, I haven't really been too far mm. into the depths of Johannesburg to actually figure it out. Every now and then I pop into a bit of Johannesburg or Pretoria and there's a coffee shop over there and they've got their own little roastery. Actually, uh, Puria's uh, new office has got a coffee shop at the bottom and I was standing there chatting to the guy who runs it and he's like, oh yeah, you're from Cape Town so this should feel a bit familiar to you and he gestures the fact that they roast their own beans in the back and I'm like, yeah, in Cape Town you won't go to a coffee shop unless they roast their own beans. Yeah, I mean, it's, there's no point. Like, what, you might as well just like stay home and drink your re-coffee. Uh, do your own plunger. Uh, I had a I had a good re-coffee on the on the ride up. Yeah, I saw that. I just read the article. It's really uh, really good, and I uh, feel a little bit like left out to be honest. Uh, I know, I know. You should maybe have been I'll there be with stand, me. Maybe I'll be stand. You know that the, the generic sort of motorbikers standing next to each other, thumbs up. You know, with like the gnarly beards. Uh, <laughs> for for a bit of con- multiple. <laughs> Yeah, go on. For a bit of context, is um, Jason and I were supposed to do all kinds of motorcycle adventures together, uh, but he is unfortunately on the other side of the world right now. Yeah. And so I did a solo motorcycle adventure up through the Karoo over four days and had a pretty incredible time, although I'll say right now, I need to spread it out more. Four days to cross the Karoo is, is too yeah. short. Uh, your butt goes dead after about two or three hours in the saddle so when you stretch it out mm. to seven seven eight hours wow that's that's dedication do you yeah, um yeah. yours is only yours is only 500 cc right it's just like mm. yeah so it's one of the reasons how, how is that attended... going because i uh because i was up in nottingham recently and i walked past this uh this really nice enfield and yeah. it had like the red the mm. red tank so i think that's like the there's like a sort of racer kind uh, oh kind of yeah, you're modern. thinking of the uh, interceptor, the yeah, real, I think field, that was real Enfield interceptor. Yeah, so that's got that's got a bit of a, a more powerful engine, and it's a bit more sporty. It's really pretty. I, I wouldn't mind getting my hands on one of those. Uh, there's only one that I've seen in Cape Town. I went for a ride with him, and uh, he was very proud of his interceptor. The one problem is that I've broken my speedo cable coming up through the Karoo, ah. and it's really difficult for me to get a new speedo cable because there are no royal enfield wow. uh sort of suppliers in south africa so i'm gonna get well there's retza down in cape town so i'm gonna get her to post uh a new speedo cable to my brother yeah i mean yeah i think that that's uh i was actually looking it's like after i saw that bike i was like oh i should probably i'll, I'll, I'll consider getting one uh, but i'm not too sure where i'd go I'm, i've been looking at like the bmw ones 
Dude, BMW oh, bikes are so pretty. They've got those those so uh, side by sides that just. Yeah, it's it's actually really cool. Like, uh, but yeah. I think they they only have like the um, I kind of like the kind of naked bikes. So like, uh, not you know not too much sort of fairing and and all of that. I mean the the Royal Enfield that I ride is is fairly naked, uh, bar the fact that it does have pretty big fenders. It doesn't have a windshield and it doesn't have all the plastics that you have on modern bikes. But before we get into that, I'm going to quickly roll us in. All right. Yeah, let's do it. Three, two, one. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Herman and Jason Spin the Yarn. Today, Jason and I are going to be speaking about something neat. And that is the only promise I'm going to give you for the episode. <laughs> yeah, I think maybe we can we could take a break from like the sort of full featured programming that we've been used doing re- regularly and maybe just have a, a bit of a chin wag. I think uh, that sounds like a good idea. Have a little bit of chat um, and see where it takes us. See where it, see where it goes. Uh, so so far, you... yeah, the motor the motorcycles are. are I, I'm quite quite keen in, on on getting one. The only problem is that my my license is still <laughs> uh, still down in Cape Town at the at the uh, driving department. I can go and pick it up for you if you write me a, a letter of uh, authentication. Yeah, um, and yeah. then I can post it to you or something. But yeah. I think that what this what this last trip kind of illustrated to me is just that that real feeling of anarchy, and I don't mean anarchy in the you know geopolitical sense or the political sense. I mean in the, the form of just like being very self sufficient, and it also kind of illustrated that romance of motorcycles and motorcyclists is the kind of uh, assumption that you're out there by yourself and you have to be very self-sufficient and if anything goes wrong it's like you have to deal with that that's entirely your prerogative and I really liked that I really enjoyed just being out by myself especially when I was like on the back uh, on the back roads that are gravel Mm -hmm. without cell phone reception I'm like this is just me it's just me and and the world yeah i think like one of the kind of philosophies that i've been thinking of recently uh, is that i i feel like that is what during like evolution and all of that we've, we've done that for so many years like where you have to look out for yourself i find that when you go into that situation where you're just basically going into into the abyss and basically relying on your instincts i i think that's when you feel like the most alive because or you feel the most in line with you know ancestry of like you know being like the nomad on the open plains like going through the you know trying to find food trying to you know get where you're going uh there's all the all these kind of tales of people and expeditions uh but the thing is the truth of the matter is is that things like it never goes smoothly 100 percent, right it's always like a niggle there's always something that goes wrong and yeah, luckily for us that, luckily for us we've that's got, the beauty like, of it <laughs> we've got recovery mechanisms for us but if you back in the day if you you had a, a motorcycle sort of cable break you'd have to like walk you wouldn't be able to like call someone to pick you up you'd have to like walk to go find someone to help you out and uh you know maybe even further back in time you know your sail would rip and then your whole boat would just be like floating in the middle of nowhere so, right, but that's uh, what I—that's how I felt like being on the on the back roads in the Karoo is that there were no no people, so essentially yeah. I would have to you know just take my keys and uh, take a good thirty k walk. 
<laughs> it was the thinking I was having between Liu Gamka and um, and Prince Albert, which was the first part of the trip that I was pretty much out on my lonesome with without any uh, without any assistance. And I'm like, ah, oh, if I pop a tire over here, I can either ride my room ragged, or I yeah. can take a twenty to thirty kilometer walk in either direction. Yeah, it it it's uh yeah, it's, it's really fascinating. Are you wearing are you wearing uh, tattoo sleeves? What's going on there? <laughs> <coughs> so they are they're they're pretty much they're, they're pretty much just sleeves without a shirt. And the, oh, wow. in this case, they've got like traditional Japanese koi as a tattoo pattern on them. And the reason for this is actually it's actually pretty good. So these are already something that cyclists wear a lot, and it uh, it helps keep them cool. What they do is they wet them and they stick them on, but it also prevents their arms for from getting um, sunburned during rides. And so I, uh, when I ride around on my scooter, I don't wear my motorcycle jacket. I know I probably should because despite the fact that it is a 150cc, other cars can still hit me. But, you know, having your arms out in front of you mm. and cruising around town really chews away at your skin. And I actually have tattoos on my right arm. And the problem with mm. Sunlight, UV light, is that it degrades yeah. tattoos. So this is just an attempt to to prevent sun damage to my tattoos. However, the reason that I'm wearing them right now is because this co-working space that I'm in, they have the thermostats set really low, and I have these in my bag all the time. So I'm like, oh, fuck, I'm getting cold. Let me put my sleeves on. Yeah, that's it. And I think they probably do it for a reason, because they want they don't want people to stay too long. Uh, or like, you know, hug, hug, hug the desks. They're like, okay, let's just crank it down. They really don't want people to like rock up on a Friday at four thirty, have a glass of wine, and uh, record a yeah. podcast in the hot desks. Yeah, exactly. But it, it's <laughs> it's also like it's one of those things that I quite miss is just that like um, first of all having access to go do do that kind of thing of like going out into the abyss, uh, going out into no, into nothing. It's uh, it's something you don't get quite as much here, um, and it is something that's hard to kind of tear away tear away from and i think it's one of those things that like markers i guess it goes back to markers of a good city is having you know good green space and the ability to go out and feel that sort of connectedness with nature and with like the world uh, i think that's super important it's probably something that i'm i'm craving a little bit and it's probably why like uh you know the, the article is so good is that it's like you know people crave that sort of sense of just being out by yourself. And I guess in some senses, some people are also quite ill-equipped to do that. Um, I've been speaking to a couple of colleagues recently and it's quite interesting. Like some of them have like never been camping, for instance, uh, and they've never really been or they've never like stepped on a trail. And I guess it's something that's quite unique to South Africa is that, you know, there is a certain ruggedness, ruggedness and certain like, you know, look after yourself mentality. Obviously, the, the weather's much better, so it makes it easier to have a, a campsite without getting rained out. Uh, but that was quite... Yeah, but you can, it can still get pretty pretty wild over here. I mean, um, you know, being stuck out in the Karoo is you will have, you will have a pretty bad case of quote-unquote exposure uh, if you, you know, are not well-equipped. So, you know, I had on, on my write-up, I 
had my side my side panel filled with uh, a spare clutch cable, some extra uh, spark plugs, as well as you know other bits and bobs that I thought that I might need if absolutely necessary, as well as a little toolkit. And I I didn't actually need the tools, but I did um, I did go and rescue someone on the side of the road who didn't have yeah. the right tool for his uh, for his yeah. flat tire, and that was that was good. That was pretty fun. But, you know, I was equipped and I was aware of, you know, the potentialities that could that could come with riding up through the desert. Yeah, and there's a there's a certain resourcefulness that you need to have just to be able to cope with that. But then it, it like I, I kind of it's immediate to think of like bigger projects or bigger sort of expeditions. Like if you were to like do something epic, like climb up Everest, right? Like just like the kind of preparation that you have to do um it, i guess not not technically these days because you just get a sherpa to do most of the work for you uh but if you had like a more ambitious project you know that pre- preparedness like how how do you know when you're like ready i guess it's more like uh it's not necessarily having like the, the right tools it's uh it's, it's the right mindset. mindset. It's the right mindset. Yeah. But that's what I meant by like the the one the one thing that makes like I don't want to say motorcyclists attractive. That would be very you know like oh, look at me, I'm so attractive. But like it, <laughs> it is. It's it's this idea like there's a you have to have a very specific mindset to put yourself on top of a machine and fly around town on top of the engine with the mm-hmm. with the knowledge that you are entirely in control of whether you live or die at any given moment. Yeah. Right. And and it is kind of that mentality that translates it's you. I, I believe it's a skill that you can learn. And I think we did a bit of that when we were in scouts or, you know, just in the ways that we grew up. And that was, you know, like self-sufficiency, making sure that if things go to shit, you'll be OK. And that's how yeah. I feel in, you know, my occupation. It's how I feel in uh, just life in general. It's like. Even if things go terribly, is I'll be alright. I'll figure it yeah. out. But but that that is soup that's super important. And as as you talk as you like mentioning it, so I've recently uh, obviously like beginning of the year like work gets a bit hectic. So uh, I've been reading up about like the effect of stress and how stress comes about. And I think it's about that sort of uh, the main thing that the main takeaway from it is that it's about. Um, feeling that you're not able to cope with what's coming. Uh, so in a sense, it's quite interesting because it's like, if you feel like you can't cope with the future uh, to develop or become less stressed, you just need to be more resourceful and know that you've got the resources to kind of find your way out of a situation. So maybe that's why, you know, like something like a motorcycle trip can be so stress relieving is because you basically, you're like going out first, first day is a bit like, Oh, what's going on? And then like the next day you're like, oh, this is not too bad. I'm kind of getting into a groove. And then over time you're like, by the end of it, you're like, yeah, I can pretty much handle anything. And uh, that's kind of like puts you in a bit of a mindset to take, take on other challenges uh, in life. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with you. And um, I mean, it, it also helps that I ended up, or you and I both ended up choosing tech as our as our occupation is that it really adds to that resiliency because it's such a in-demand skill at the moment yeah. is that you can make that choice to go and do something that is potentially risky occupation wise with the knowledge that you know you'll be okay 
someone will hire you if this doesn't work out. Like if I, if this whole entrepreneurship thing doesn't work out for me is literally just today. I had three people pretty much say, Hey, come and work for me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> interestingly enough, one of them, can I, I'm just going to bash on one of the major banks in South Africa for one second. Yeah, uh, let just me just don't mention their name. <laughs> I'm not going to mention their name. I'm not, not going to mention their name, but you know, they didn't even mention their name because the email title is hello from square brackets company name. Yeah. <laughs> but I could tell from the, uh, from the email address, which, uh, which bank they are. So it says, hi, I hope this message finds you. Well, I'm talent acquisition at blah, 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 bank. And I came across yeah. your profile. We're growing the tech department space and looking for developers front end with brackets Java. And I'm like, oh, wow. he's like, I really like your background. I thought it would be great to connect and share specifics. Cool, cool, cool. And then it says, how many years experience do you have as a front end developer, Java? And then it's how many years <laughs> of experience do you have in Java scripts? Oh, wow. And it, it, was, it was actually a parody of an email. It was so bad. Uh, it felt like a parody, but it was real. Oh, really? Um, and it, it kind of went and emphasized how like in-demand tech skills are and that the people who are recruiting for them don't even know what they're recruiting for. Yeah. Right. Um, but instead of just ignoring it or like laughing it off, I went and I actually emailed the guy back and I'm like, hey, Karabo, uh, I hope you find a good candidate. However, these questions in the job description are, are incorrect. So I went and I corrected him on a couple of the terms over there. I'm like, first, front-end development is done in JavaScript, not Java. The two very different language. Secondly, there's no such thing as JavaScripts. And then a couple of other things, such as the square brackets company name, as well as asking me to tell them what my salary is up front. Um, and he yeah. sent me back an email and he's like, thank you very much for, for uh, doing this. I, you know, really appreciate. He says, I highly appreciate and will work on my email. Uh, and thanks for taking the time to explain this all to me. And that, that, I think that was a constructive response to what is essentially a parody email. Yeah. So I think that's great. And I think that's something that's needed more in industry and especially in industries like tech and also very much in South Africa is understanding that even tech itself in, in the context of South Africa is like still way above like the general sort of capacity of most, most people. Right. So I, I like the fact that it's like, it's not just like, I, I recruiters get a lot of grift about like, Oh, they don't know the first thing about programming, but also like no one really takes a time. Like, where are they supposed to learn about this? Right. They're not, if they knew about it, they'd be programmers, not recruiters. So, I mean, it's, it's kind of like, it's good to think in that mindset of like, okay, let's just grow everyone. Like maybe they don't understand, you know, if it is like programmatic, okay, fine. That's, that's probably a bad thing, but you know, someone who's trying to go out, everyone should be like helping each other out. Um, so, uh, every Friday, I, before the school, actually at around one o'clock, one to two, I have a call with a bunch of other tech founders. Um, and these are, these are actually fairly, fairly, uh, awesome people the two of them run code capsules which is actually a heroku slash aws competitor and the other is the founder of a technical writing company called ritza and you know other people make their their guest appearances here and there but the topic that we dug into today was how 
tech as it currently stands really, really benefits from a person being multifaceted and that they have more than just tech as their skill. So let's take, for instance, your occupation involves both sales and people skills as well as a technical expertise, right? And that essentially creates your your job, your niche. In uh, Ritza's side, they need someone who can write and articulate complex concepts in a way that is easy to read and easy to understand and also, you know, have technical skills. My brother who works in the financial systems development department of a law firm needs people to, well, really, really wants and needs, but cannot find people who are very literate in in the financial system as well as our tech literate. And I think that this is, you know, this goes through pretty much any industry is that if you are a medical practitioner who also happens to know how, you know, systems development works and program, then you have a serious leg up in that industry in that you can create tools and tooling that that supports the everyday, you know, whatever. That's it. Uh, so, so I often have this conversation with my brother and uh, it, it's basically that, that thing. I mean, you know, in, in universities, they usually have these different campuses, right? So you've got like law, you've got engineering, you've got, you know, the social studies. But the thing is like the, the, the way that I see it is that the value comes in the people who go from the law firm and go talk to the engineering people or go from the, you know, English studies and go talk to, you know, the maths department. Because there's problems that have been solved, maybe in a different way, uh, in another sort of field that not many people know about. And there's value to be created. And I think that thing is of like connecting the different parts. is something that's really quite challenging, like maybe in traditional education systems. It's like, how do you how do you sort of learn one thing, then learn another thing? Because you like, oh, I want to be an engineer. And then you like get a job as an engineer. But where do you start to learn, you know, how to be a social scientist or like, where is that, where's that crossover come from? And unless it's, and maybe it's like the basic education. So you have a certain base level of education. And I surprisingly rely a lot on like the stuff I learned in like biology in like sixth grade. Uh, Cause I'm like getting quite into sort of, you know, green, the green tech space and biology in general. And I'm quite interested at, at the moment. But it's just like that stuff I'm still relying on in sixth grade, which just highlights yeah. the importance of basic education. No, I, I feel you over there. And um, a, a really good, uh, like I, I actually really want to write a blog post on this whole interdomain knowledge and how it, you know, makes people more effective. But a, a great way to think of how insular tech actually is, is if you take a look at how tech augments other ancillary industries such as law or medicine or uh, whatever, is it is very slow and incremental. Like uh, if you go and get an x-ray right now, they'll x-ray you and then they will essentially burn you a CD with your x-ray on it. And they'll put a program on the CD that you need to install on the computer that you put it on so that you can read that x-ray whereas you know the obvious thing to me would be like oh just make it a web service so and you know shared by a link so you can text it to someone and obviously have some some security in place to make sure that it's not 
you know, uh, leakable. But if you take a look at that, and then you take a look at like developer tooling, you can see starkly how many developers are just developers because they're solving developer problems. They're not solving medical problems. They're not solving financial problems. They're solving developer problems. Mm -hmm. The fact that we have as many programming languages and frameworks as we do, where each of them might be like incrementally, like a very small increment better is a perfect example of this. So if you wanted to improve the the x-ray dispensing software, it would be a huge leap to just upgrade it once. Whereas in a single year, each of these development frameworks and platforms are updated and changed so consistently, which means that we're just we're just tutoring our own flutes because we need to have more developers that are multifaceted. Hmm. And there's a lot like, yeah, it's about being multifaceted. And I think, I mean, the, the desire, like the desire to build value um, within any sort of ecosystem or any sort of nation. I think that like my personal belief is that it comes somewhere from entrepreneurship and the idea that uh, maybe linking back to what we talked about before is like that ruggedness of like, can, can, can I find a better solution to this problem? And you know, di diving into like how you can achieve that. So, I mean, if you've, if you've, you know, worked with, you know, Java, for instance, and you decide, Hey, this is like, this is not working or it's like really complicated. You go out and invent Kotlin, which is kind of like Python for Java. Uh, and you have that sort of ambition to create that new thing. That I think is something that's part of like entrepreneurship in a sense, and just being inventive. But having that confidence to be inventive at that level, I think, is uh, is something that needs to be fostered. And there's a lot of talk. Uh, well, I've, I, I don't know if you've read. Uh, you know, Ray Dalio's recently come out with a book called uh, Prince, uh, "Principles of a Changing World Order" or something like that. Uh, and if you look into the the details of some of those things, in terms of like a world order and becoming like the the new world order. Uh, what usually leads is education. So the edu the population becomes extremely educated, and then there's a short like a short lag before the economic prosperity goes comes up. So if there's a, as a if there's any indicator that a country is going to become prosperous, is that there's a uh, a large investment in education, because it's those those foundations of like do I have the knowledge and do I have the sort of confidence in the knowledge that I can find my way out of a situation. Uh, and it seems like everywhere in the world is kind of fucking that up quite royally bar like some European states is everywhere else in the world educate uh, primary and uh, primary and secondary education seems to be declining where and tertiary education becomes more and more expensive and inaccessible. And then you have, uh, Europeans who are like, oh yeah, we had a uh, good uh, primary and secondary school, and then the government they paid us to go to university, and yeah. it's it's incredible that that's the case. I mean, when when I uh, in in Cape Town, I lived with a bunch of Dutch people for a while, and they were all studying and they were doing a semester abroad, and. I was out for lunch in Stellenbosch with them and at the same time all of their phones went beep and they're looking at it and they're all like, yeah, we, we have just got paid 
I'm like, who paid you? It's like, oh, the government. <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> yeah. It's the other way around. You pay the government. And they're like, yeah. no, no, no. The government pays us to go abroad and study. And I'm, it, is, it hurt my brain. I'm like, yeah. how is this a thing? But yeah. it is a very, very firm investment in education and broadening social horizons and et cetera, et cetera. Hmm. But I think, I think the thing is also like without like how let's assume that you don't have that social structure to do that like where does where does that come from and i think there are some glimmers well i feel there's some glimmers of hope in things like the gig economy like if you look at the way that sort of the new generations gen z's are looking to do more gigs and more sort of part-time work and you know okay maybe most of it's in crypto or something like that but like there, there's kind of like an inkling that you know you, you don't need to rely on traditional systems to get to where you need to get to like you can go on to you know youtube masterclass you can go on to you know udemy you can find the information you need there's loads of open courseware there's loads of like mit sessions that are just available i mean you've got the knowledge is available but it's about how do you how do you get people to think about it as like hey i can go and learn this and then i can go and apply it because I think that's like right. the, the real challenge. Well, so so I, with, with regard to the to the gig economy and dissemination of information, with with regard to the, firstly the dissemination of information, high high quality information. So you know courses and like MIT OpenCourseWare, as well as you know actual useful things on YouTube that allow people to upskill. I know so many people who have learned so much by just following YouTube tutorials, and that is awesome. And then they go and they apply that in real life to their job. Like people will become motorcycle mechanics from doing mechanics videos and people will become mm -hmm. software developers from doing software videos. Um, and the flip side of things, the gig economy in terms of employment has like, I'm going to, you're going to see like my inner socialist kind of come, fuck these guys is, is it's, it's taken essentially the capitalist system and bastardized it by removing the ability for people to negotiate their own prices. So it actually removes the free market from free market capitalism. And so like, let's take, for instance, this morning, I took an Uber into town and the Uber driver was complaining vehemently to me that the trip that I was taking was too short and he wouldn't be able to turn a profit on that trip. Mm -hmm. And my response to him was like, shit, well, you shouldn't have accepted this trip with me. And also Uber needs to pay you more. Um, but if you think about Uber as a system, Uber is pretty much a monopoly in uh, e-hailing taxis at the moment. And the way that they would rectify that system, oh, sorry, sorry, the way that I would see the whole driver compensation being rectified, returning to more of a free market system is where drivers can kind of vote on better prices uh themselves as opposed to those prices directly being set by uber so you've got you've got a gig economy that we always think of as being like oh ultra capitalist but then they remove a fundamental part of what makes capitalism work to a certain extent by mm. by essentially price fixing like if if <laughs> if taxi drivers all came together outside of uber and they said hey guys let's set our prices at exactly this then 
you know, outside of governmental regulation, it would be it would be a form of price price fixing. Yeah, so I, I think I think that 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 uh, anomaly that you're seeing is is not a fair indication of like a, a capitalistic uh, system. Because no, no, I'm saying it's a it's a bastardized one. It's a bastardized. It is one. a bastardized system, yeah. But I, I I would say that it's not it's not a reason to neglect the intentions and the capitalism behind it, because the fact that you have Uber now, I mean, like before Uber, how many times did you use a taxi or call a cab? I I don't even think I did here. I don't think I've ever called a cab uh, before I had Uber, right? So you've basically what Uber did is it took in that industry and created it made it more accessible it it drove down the prices for sure but it it's not it's not perfect because if you look at in london the price of an uber is now pretty much like the same as it would be to get a cab and the cab systems have also now got their own app so what what would happen what should happen in that scenario where the person is underpaid is that there should be enough options because of an open market, there should be options to go and seek out that uh, that difference. So if you're getting a better a better deal at another company like Lyft, maybe you should do it. But also there should be a failure condition in that if there's not enough work, you've got something to fall back on and go to something else and switch. That's I think that's the essence of the gig economy and where it works well. Um, but because obviously having a saturated worker market is not good for anyone. Um, but the problem is that in that saturation, if they were to cut down, the thing is those people have nothing else to do, right? I'm going to argue with you a little bit over here. So just bear with me. So one of the reasons that Uber drivers at the moment, and I'm talking from a purely South African perspective, so hmm. don't, don't apply this to everywhere else, is... One of the reasons why Uber drivers are really frustrated because they're not making any money right now is actually because of some what we would consider healthy competition entering the market in the form of Bolt and uh, Didi, the Chinese, the Chinese e-hailing platform. Mm-hmm. And essentially, this has created a race to the bottom in terms of fares because this is something that people do do fare comparison like price comparison on it is heavily price sensitive and mm. so when dd lowers their prices uber has to lower their prices bolt lowers their prices uber lowers their prices to the extent mm. that uh the actual driver and again because the drivers themselves can't set their own prices these are set by dd bolt and uber it essentially it essentially creates a situation where these drivers can't actually make a living wage uh, and this led to some pretty big protests in Cape Town and Johannesburg about a month or two ago um, yeah. and and so the introduction of of uh, of competition in this instance was actually worse for the drivers themselves but I'll grant you it was definitely better for the end consumer because we could have all three apps on our phone we could choose whichever mm-hmm. one was the cheapest for us at any given moment yeah, so the only challenge to that, I would say, is that in in the closed loop system that you've chosen in just that industry, the problem is, the challenge there is that that Uber driver has one skill, and that is driving Ubers. The, the, what should happen is if you are not getting enough pay from doing the job of an Uber driver, you should have the freedom to quit and do something else. Yeah, and absolutely. In that, if, you look at, if you look at some of the large companies at, uh, at the moment, what's happening 
is that they're struggling to find talent because the we- the minimum wage has been driven down so much. And now with the whole uh, pandemic stuff and people going back, there's like a struggle to get people to actually come and work for you. So in a in the se- it's not exactly the same because it's a job market versus a, a gig economy market, but getting talent is so hard to get that it's actually driving up the price, right? So like you can get a better salary now because you know people are demanding that from from larger companies rather than you know uh, you know going to the the bare minimum wage, right? That's something that's not necessarily enforced. It's something that the market condition has brought about, right? So if all those drivers are upset and then they go work, you know, as like take a lot, maybe work for take a lot or do something else, then there's not enough drivers to keep the, the demand from Uber's side uh, satisfied, which means the price that's getting paid, it will go up. So there's actually a benefit in having less drivers because then you're more in demand as a driver. And so you can demand a higher price or else Uber's not going to be able to operate. Right? If all the Uber drivers stop working, there's no uh-huh. there's no Uber business. And that one guy yeah. that is working is going to get all the business and then they're going to get a lot of money. So that, that's kind of how the, the sort of well, so, dynamics so of I, works. So I, I agree with you, but the problem is that these systems aren't, aren't built as these dynamic systems. So as a great example, again, in the last two months in Cape Town, your driver would start to take like 10, 15 minutes or just no one would ever come and pick you up on Uber because yeah. so many people had quit during the pandemic, but now there was a resurgence of demand. However, because Uber regulated the prices, the it didn't really incentivize drivers to return to the road as fast as it could have. And mm-hmm. so instead, of, like I would have happily paid an extra 20 to 50 rand to take this trip, but I didn't have the option to say, hey, listen, prioritize my trip, please. I've like I'm going to pay an extra 20 rand because these prices were set by Uber and instead Uber would just say there aren't people in this area right now to take you sorry bye yeah and I, I've had a few few occasions where like a driver came like arrived and he's like basically drove right past and I, well I saw him coming past and he like turned around and I was he was he cancelled as he like went past me and then he turned around and he went to go pick up someone else and like I, I, I spoke to him I'm like dude, why did you do that? Like, why? And he's like, no, I'm not, I'm not going in that area. Um, sorry, bro. And, and I was like, I'd been waiting there for like 15 minutes. So, I mean, in that case, it's also like to, to the detriment of Uber or to the detriment of these products is that as you have like larger scale, it gets harder to control quality. And in a sense, it kind of regulates itself uh, to a certain degree. But let's take a moment to appreciate the fact that we think of 15 minutes of waiting for a private driver to come and pick us up as being a negative. Yeah, that's true. Uh, and I think that the, the challenge also, and this is maybe where we need to flip it to be more entrepreneurial, is that there is obviously a, there's there's a value in giving those drivers agency, right? So the, the whole thing is about that driver doesn't have another option to go and do something. But if I was an Uber driver, or I mean, it's very hard to say hypothetically and do that if I was an Uber driver. But if there was a, a platform that, you know, an Uber driver could pay a reasonable amount for and they could start to develop their own sort of client base, maybe not for like internal trips, but, you know, maybe for like long distance. Uh, I've had a couple of occasions where uh, I met this like dude and he took us to like uh, a wine farm or something, which is no, no easy trip uber would be quite expensive but he said okay he'll give us a better rate 
And then he started to develop his own client base of like, okay, he'll take you to long on long distance trips. And then there you pulled up more of a sort of your, you, you work for yourself kind of mentality rather than you, you're dependent on Uber. And it's, it's maybe not just in that ca- case, but you know, having the agency to choose different options and get your, your money from somewhere else rather than just having a single source that kind of feeds into entrepreneurship and the whole sort of uh, like greater gig economy. I, I think. Yeah. I, so I, I do agree with you over there and I'm going to take a, a bit of a change in topic over here since we've got a short amount of time left, but I want to talk to you about this area in Johannesburg called Melrose Arch. Have you been there? I have been there. I think I had a pizza there once. <laughs> right. So I, I went there for the first time yesterday with Frankie. And mm-hmm. I'd never been there before. And I realized when I was there, what it was, is it was essentially a walking neighborhood created by a private a private corporation. So they essentially took all the aspects that make like good walking cities like Singapore or some European cities, and they just turned it into a neighborhood. So you drive in there and you park underground. So there's no cars above surface or like very, very few cars above surface. And then you go up and it's like walking streets everywhere. It's restaurants, cafes, co-working spaces, uh, apartments, parks for you to chill in. You can go and you can look at the art galleries and everything. And I'm like, mm-hmm. this is this is what we need from our cities. Not just like, like you, I'm inside of, and by the way, Johannesburg is the least walkable city in the world, according to the walkability index, right? Yeah. I'm in the least walkable city in the world. And they're like, okay, yeah, we're, we're car centric over here and let's create this, you know, mixed use business park or whatever the devil it's called. Mm -hmm. And it's so nice in there. And I'm like, we could do that with the city. This doesn't have to be done with private capital. Yeah. I mean, I mean that that's, that's one of the occasions where it's kind of like the socialist is like, Oh, well, okay, maybe it doesn't necessarily work that we just tax people and expect the government to sort this out. Because in some cases, I mean, the other example is the waterfront. And I have actually heard rumors that there's going to be a harbor arch in Cape Town, which is by the same company. There is, yeah. So so that thing of like, oh, actually, a private company has taken the waterfront. They, you know, redeveloped it, made it super walkable. I don't know, like, when I walk around the waterfront, it's not the greatest. I mean, there's a few places where you have to cross a road maybe, but you can walk along that canal side. You've got like water, you've got, you know, entertainment and that's all sort of privately done. Uh, and that's kind of a little bit of a shame, right? You know, like those people who are maybe they're being employed to d- design these these uh, buildings and these spaces, uh, you know, is there a way that they could maybe better you know, utilize those skills towards the government or maybe the government can employ those kind of companies? It's it's like yeah it's a challenge like uh, but I agree I mean maybe it's I think it's yeah I think it's better that private companies get more involved in that. Uh, that I think kind it's of just thing. one of the ways that we can get a good walkable neighborhood. Yeah, it's it's get involved. You know, like the thing is like not expecting someone something to sort itself out and rather just you know taking the reins yourself. Obviously, it's like well without outside of my. <laughs> my uh, bracket in terms of being able to like develop a whole sort of neighborhood but uh, yeah it's quite it's quite good to see that well obviously it's for 
profit, right? It's not necessarily it's not necessarily <laughs> because they they felt altruistic, altruistic. But it does show that the, the sort of idea of people wanting to gravitate to those kind of areas because of the walkability means that it's definitely something that's beneficial for other places. Yeah, you can point to that area and you can be like, it makes sense for all of these businesses to invest a lot of money in literally creating a little walking neighborhood. Therefore, if the government did this for you for free, it's not going to fuck up your business, Joe.